Welcome to the Macroscape Podcast, your source for a critical look at the crypto world. Macroscape is an advisory and software company that curates and creates blockchain software to empower people to participate in a decentralized economy. We have worked with Archain, CoFoundit, ShoreRemit, and Menlo, and we are currently accepting applications for advisory, partnerships, and software buildouts. I'm your host, Nathan Windsor, CEO and founder of Macroscape. I've been involved in the Brooklyn crypto world since 2015. My guests today are Ethan Schmertzler and Chris DeLorenzo, CEO and Director of Engineering at Dispel. Dispel uses moving target defense to make your infrastructure invisible and segmented, stopping attackers from gaining actionable knowledge. Go to Dispel.io and check out their moving target VPN defense product made specifically for crypto traders. Keep listening to the podcast for a special offer from Dispel. Welcome. Um, this is a uh, experimental sort of duo podcast. Um, so Macroscape, uh, um, Pencilworks, and um, and Dispel are going to be uh, sort of we're going to be going in through into specifics of. Uh, of VPNs, of crypto attacks, and how uh, Dispel as a service can help prevent and could have prevented um, the previous historical cases. Um, so I'm here with uh, Chris DeLorenzo and Ethan Schmerzler, um, the guys from Dispel, um, CEO and CTO. Um, so um, we've known each other for a little while, but I wanted to sort of sit down and, and kind of pick your brains publicly about uh, about the tech that you guys work on. Um, so thanks for setting this up. Well, thank you for having us. Sure. Um, so to, I think what we're going to assume is that the people listening to the show are like either crypto traders or, or interested in the idea of cybersecurity. So can you walk us through, um, so I think generally people understand what VPNs are, but can you like walk us through like what you, what, what the, uh, the innovation that you guys have created. Can you walk us through that? Sure. And the, I mean, the purpose of a VPN at its core is to create an encrypted tunnel um, or private network that traverses public internet infrastructure. And that's historically been for routing traffic from point A to point B. Um, most people use it in civilian sort of circumstances to watch movies when they're overseas and stuff like that and deal with uh, geolocation-based restrictions. Um, but it does actually have a nice secondary use, which you certainly see in corporate environments, which is for segmentation. And when we talk about segmentation, the idea is that even though a device or an endpoint, so a laptop or a phone or something like that, is connected to the public internet, it can be siloed into its own little private network so that other resources can't move laterally into it. So it's a way of sort of putting up walls and fences around environments. Um, one of the things that's coming up is software defined, these ideas of software-defined networks or software-defined perimeters, which has evolved into SD-WAN, which are a new way of routing traffic around um, to sort of solve this issue of having resources exposed to the public internet. Um, but in a way that they're also cloaked so that third parties can't determine where the applications where the infrastructure is that they're talking to. Okay, so um, from, um, so a software-defined perimeter um, should, 
do you think that exchanges, crypto exchanges should be hosted within those perimeters? Where do you sort of see, um, how do you imagine that happening? Yeah, so we had looked at some of the stuff that the um, crypto graveyard had for previous historical incidents. And I think there was a consistent theme where you had endpoints that were being exposed to the internet and gave attackers time to figure out how to get into the network and then do their research for how to move into production systems or move into cold storage or figure out how traffic was getting routed through so they could then um, change where those keys were being handed off to. And so to answer your question about the advantage of putting something inside of a software-defined perimeter is the cloaking capabilities that the contemporary ones can give networks is that it prevents an adversary from having the time or being able to pick um, the time and place of their choosing when they want to attack the network and it eliminates their ability to do research and do the reconnaissance that they've been historically doing in a lot of those attacks. So and this is, and this is uh, a direct result of moving target defense? Yeah, so moving target defense is the idea that can't, that was living in the academic community of trying to effectively achieve this, right? How do we connect systems onto the public internet but without creating an attack profile that anyone else could abuse? Hmm. So, and um, what what's the mechanism of um, moving to moving target defense? So, I think a lot of people understand it basically, but um, can you talk about how that's sort of randomized within the VPN server? Mm -hmm. Sure. Historically, moving target defense has been used in, in actual production on chipsets. It's a way of hiding information inside of processors. Network level moving target defense, which is what you're referring to, is the creation and usage of virtualization as a way of creating uh, traffic nodes and infrastructure nodes that are spread around the internet. And then you can connect those to one another in such a way that a third party can't predict where they might originate from or they might be going to. So if you, you know, this is sort of a sense of like a nuclear submarine, right? We hide them in the oceans because they're really hard to find. Um, and you have to sort of know in that one magical moment, this is where the submarine is at this moment, but we'll lose that information later. So it's the exact same sort of principle, but we're just taking the sensitive infrastructure uh, and endpoints and hiding them in an ocean of IP space. I might actually, if I could just jump in for a hot sec there. I thought that was a great answer, but just to give more of a like down to earth example of what that might look like. Let's say I am trying to watch, uh, I'm streaming something, and I, only, I can only stream it from Romania, maybe. And so the problem is, in a traditional VPN, I would then look, use it to connect to Romania to stream my show, but because that computer never kind of gets destroyed and stood up in a new like secret IP space, um, or not necessarily secret, but just random, like one random AWS server somewhere in Romania. Um, I end up, you know, the Netflix provider, wherever I'm streaming from, ends up knowing exactly that anybody coming out of this IP is definitely just somebody who's on this VPN service. And so if you instead would put those VPN servers or exit points in a public cloud, maybe in multiple public clouds like Dispel does, and then you, you know, schedule and automatically you know, keep moving them around, destroying one, standing up a new one, and then you know, seamlessly transitioning your connection to the new one, then you can really start talking about like, a moving target layer on your VPN. Mm -hmm. And then you can stream to your heart's content. <laughs> so so is, this, um, is this applicable in places like China or, or, or where state actors are following specific VPN out, uh, outputs? So 
there are certain regulatory requirements that you have to meet in order to exist in some of those environments. Nice um, disclosure. So I won't speak to that. Uh, you'd obviously want to be in compliance with it. S depending upon how sophisticated the actual service that you're within, um, some of them will just throttle VPN or any encrypted traffic as a way of basically getting people to stop using uh, VPN traffic and stuff like that because they can't. They want to be able to see what it is. So if you throttle it, it's really slow, and people will say, "All right, I'm just going to ditch the VPN and go with this other system, um, which is less secure." So depending upon who, what environment you're in, some folks are they're just they're more restrictive on it, and they're going to try to stamp that that kind of traffic routing out. Are there specific use cases? Um for um, how this relates to election defense? Yeah, so this is in cryptocurrencies and protect, which have these really valuable data sets, right? The keys that have access to these wallets. It's sort of the same thing as how do you get access to um, voting rolls? How do you get access to vote tabulation, right? Any time where you have to connect what is arguably systems that should probably be kept offline um, and you put them onto the internet, these are moments where you have these attack surfaces that get created. And so what you want to be able to do is sort of put some defense in depth, right? The, you want to make sure that the endpoints that are connecting to these services are segmented um, into their own environments. And then you want to make sure that any malware that might get onto them is not persistent. So this idea of destroying infrastructure constantly is a way of purging that, essentially. Um, you're not relying on a heuristic or a signature-based defense to detect that something is going on, that you just say, I'm going to start fresh every day or every hour. Um, and then you want to make sure that the only way that those endpoints know how to find their way to those repositories, again, that's voter rolls or that could be uh, the private keys for a wallet, the only way to get through that is through this moving target defense layer. Um, what that means is it's sort of a time-based situation. So for 15 minutes, this endpoint here that's authorized itself and been granted access, the knowledge it has about where that network is, is only useful for that session. So it's sort of session-based level information. And I think just to add to what you're saying, uh, I think it's very common. I mean, you understand how you got to the current situation, right? You have a computer and it's online and thus you can use it to do stuff, right? A computer that's not hooked up to the internet nowadays is not very useful. And so you end up having these networks that have always been online and that's where you're not putting your secret stuff. And then it's like you keep adding new functionality to it. And it's like, oh, we should really take these other parts offline, but it's like, oh, that's extra work. And, and you don't tend to, usually privileges tend to escalate in a direction which is counter to security, right? A sysadmin needs to get something done, and so they give themselves just the privileges to get that one thing done. No, they give themselves root privileges, and now, you know, they can solve all the problems, and then they forget to, like, remove that root user after they go, and thus, you know, there's now this, like, you know, root uh, shell session available for people on that computer. And, this, and that's how it always, you know, as, as a system continues to live, I like to think that there's more and more kind of good reasons to extract usefulness from it, that its security is kind of getting worse and worse. And so uh, where those privileges are starting to get more and more on lockdown is on like a computer level, but Dispel is trying to, you know, apply that on like a global internet network kind of level. Yeah. Can, can you talk about how um, the Dispel private enclaves can prevent phishing attacks? So one, one, one thing that's really big in crypto phishing is um, um, people posing to be admins within Telegram groups, um, but, or, or actually just sending um, 
sending emails to their followers and you know requesting a payment or something yeah so the messaging groups is something that's really important right verifying through secondary channels when people ask for information or ask for bank transfers is sort of a classic um, phishing strategy where there's sort of two there's one way that is often done in corporate environments which is if someone sends a request through for a wire transfer for instance you have to call them the bank will call you or you'll call the counterparty and have a verbal confirmation of saying hey this is us you know who are you can you verify this um, and they do it that way and they use the historical information that they had on the file to call someone obviously this is becoming more challenging in cryptocurrencies because it's not a traditional banking system, right? So the flexibility that it gives you uh, is one that doesn't maybe come accompanied with that secured messaging application. One of the things that we've seen interest in from the cryptocurrency community has been creating um, secured groups, essentially, of folks who can participate in these conversations with one another, where the only way that you've been given access to that network has been through the, uh, because you've been granted sort of privileged access to that uh, communication environment. To your point about phishing, it's impossible for a third party to basically spoof or send a message into that environment because they don't know where that environment is to begin with. So, um, well, that would be really good news for, for people running ICOs. Uh, yeah, uh, basically having mission-specific communications channels and compute capability, which then gets destroyed after you're done or on a regular basis, does a couple things, right? It prevents people from doing reconnaissance on the network figuring out how they're gonna break in. It affords basically sloppy behavior that endpoints might not be secured. People might click download links, uh, you know, a, a Word file gets distributed on, uh, on Skype to folks that has malware in it. Those sorts of things can't happen if you've created these segmented virtualized environments and those are the only ways you can really touch these super sensitive computer environments that have keys and stuff like that. So if someone wants to run a Dispel Enclave for their ICO, what do you recommend that they do? They should probably call us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they would want to have a couple things. Um, we usually see that people want a messaging tool so they can have... So it's like a private Mattermost. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a group messaging chat room where they can invite other folks in, counterparties, they can all communicate in, and then, but that's living on the, uh, within the control of the people who are doing their ICO. The other thing that we usually see people like to do is video conferencing tools, so that way you can have end-to-end -end encrypted face-to-face um, -face interactions. And then the final one are the VPN and virtual desktops. So the virtual desktops are kind of interesting because it gives you basically a disposable glove. That's the only, so you can always keep the services that you're touching um, secure from any malware that might get into the environment that's on your local computer. But it also means that adversaries don't ever glean actionable intelligence by watching the network traffic that's coming off of the ICO's computers. Yeah, this makes sense. This is like a clear, this is like a no-brainer for people running these kind of ICOs. Um, is there, um, well, I've sort of thought about the election defense side. Um, and I think that if a, if a municipality was running like ZK Starks, which is some sort of derivative of, of a zero knowledge proof with Zcash stuff, mm -hmm. except I think it's more private, I think it's more shielded, um, then they would, they would they'd be able to look at the votes and they wouldn't know who cast them or the content of them, but they'd know that they were true. 
Um, and then if it was run, I mean, if they run their uh, election within a, an enclave, that seems like a pretty secure method. Yeah, the it be where you put the results. You can obviously speak better to actually how the blockchain implementation would work. Where the data ultimately, it's where the data ultimately resides in some respects, but also how do you permission who's allowed to have access to that voting environment, um, which is where these private enclave movement target defense can be implemented. Yeah, um, I just voted actually, and there's, I mean, arguably no defense. Yeah, elections are kind of interesting things. We've been working on this for a while um, after the Russian interference in the last um, presidential election. And it's so it's, it's a hard problem to tackle because, especially in the United States, because it's such a fragmented system, which in some respects is terrific because every municipality has its own equipment. Um, they have their own sort of ways of doing it. So that's in some respects a good thing, um, but it also is harder because it means that you can't just mandate from the top down, you have to adopt security and here's the money to do it because you have states' rights. So the federal government can make funding available, which they've done, but the states aren't obligated to take that. And then remember, it's not just the state level that buys them, it's the, the counties and municipalities that buy them. So imposing security down on, on a small municipality is actually incredibly difficult to do. Um, and they may want to do it as well, but they also have competing requirements, right? They're running, an election is something that they're doing part of the time, but they also have police and health and services and water and utilities that they also have to be dealing with and take funding and attention. Which also have really bad cybersecurity. Generally speaking, cybersecurity is really hard and it moves really fast <coughs> and oftentimes it's expensive and I think it's also perceived as you know it's not an investment that we can make now because I've got other fires that I have to put out um, but it's an investment that need, you know usually costs more to repair these problems after the fact than it does to just prevent them in the first place yeah it's a lot like going to the doctor like going to the dentist or something yeah exactly um, I'm curious uh, I'm curious to like find out a little bit more um, how you guys came up with this like when did you at what point did you sort of start working on the project? So we've been, we've had folks working on this since about 2010. Um, the idea behind moving target defense is not our own. Uh, it's an idea that was floating around the academic and defense and intelligence communities for over a decade. Um, you know, when the Navy first did TOR, for instance, back in the late 1990s, that was kind of the earliest idea of a moving target defense. And they've been playing around with it in their own environments. but. The idea behind it really has been how do you increase resiliency um, and allow communications to occur without having a third party be able to infer information about it. So if you remember back in 2010, this is all about metadata analysis. Um, that was the big thing back in the day. And it still is there, it's just become, people become more comfortable in some respects with metadata leaking, um, which may be a bad thing. But that was where it was around, which was how do you actually get moving target defense implemented at a network level so that you could cloak environments, production servers, endpoints um, without having a lot of third parties to know what's going on. Now the major challenge behind it is actually latency. Because you're moving resources around, you're using these virtual machines as intermediaries. When people tried to do this in the past, they hit basically the speed of light, right? The more hops you do, the worse the latency is. Um, so one of the real tricks to making it work well was making it so that it would be okay and you don't uh, incur bad amounts of uh, latency. Hmm. 
So specifically, um, that's, that's really interesting. I, I was looking into how um, a lot of the, um, the the security for like crypto exchanges work, and it's generally there. There's a large percentage of them that are inside jobs. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that um, you can track who's interacting with the wallet through a dispel enclave? Yeah, you can track to what extent which users are allowed to do what. So it seemed from our reading about postmortems on attacks that figuring out who did what or what happened and doing that forensic analysis has been challenging for folks. Um, one of the advantages of having a software-defined network is that you can in fact log uh, what traffic is going where and to a greater extent who's doing what on what machines inside of these environments because they're not just SaaS services. So it affords you greater forensic capabilities after the fact. Um, basically you can say you know x y and z users are the only ones that are allowed to touch these environments and then we can go back in and say and this is what they did so um you would say x y and z have have the ability to 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 touch the environment so but then you'd have to be hosting like would you would where would you be hosting the private key you You would probably want to host it on premises or you keep the private key completely offline and like in a hardware wallet or something. Correct. Uh, but how would you confirm that, like, Alice had access? That it was Alice that liquidated the account, because she was she would have to be logging in. What if she? I mean, what if she had the private key on a on a piece of hardware wallet, and then just went off to another, you know, wallet like mm-hmm. my Ether wallet or something, and then just touched it there. So this is a physical security problem, more so than a, um, a digital security issue. And security safeguards are important, right? Having, um, when you have these sorts of keys, which are incredibly valuable, putting them in locked guarded environments with access logs, people observing if you are going in to get access to that key, who else is there with you? Does someone else have to be with you? Um, how are we logging what's going on in those environments physically is something that we don't do as a company, um, but certainly the banking industry has this, right? If you go for a safe deposit box, there are ways to get into this, um, and there are ways that they're guarded. Hmm. Yeah, yeah we, we can't solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you can't really solve stupid, right? Yeah. Here's your special offer. Contact Dispel and mention the Macroscape podcast for a reduced rate on your first month. Yeah, there'd have to be a way to... I'm surprised that more... Crypto freaks don't talk about like you know safe deposit boxes. I know they have those like things in the Swiss m- mountains or whatever, but you know, regular banks also work. Yeah, I mean having a having that kind of safeguards, which is what financial institutions are required to have, is something that hasn't been obviously adopted quite yet by the cryptocurrency community. Um, and maybe a natural extension of the idea that cryptocurrencies are an open and free-flowing sort of tool. And so the idea of then putting them inside of locked vaults with guards, gates, and guns might seem to be con- you know, incongruous uh, to that. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the custody issue is still uh, quite sort of unsolved. Mm-hmm. I guess we're all banking that, that Coinbase is now a bank and now is sort of holding everyone's private keys. but. They could be hacked tomorrow, right? 
um, are there any, uh, do you follow the 51% attacks um, more recently? No, I'm not familiar so, with that. So, the 50, so periodically, uh, within the last like three, four weeks, there was a 51% attack on Zencash. Um, and the, the curious thing is that there was a, an article published before that said, oh, it would cost X amount of dollars to stage a 51% attack on, um, on Zencash. And they're kind of like a privacy token and they really, they're a fork of, uh, they're a fork of Z Classic and then that goes to, to uh, Zcash and to Bitcoin. So they're like a fork of a fork. Um, uh, but they, they didn't, respond to that at the time and so somebody was just able to pull a lot of hash power over to one of the pools and just kind of gain um, the leading block like was just able to basically print Zen cash out of thin air mm -hmm. uh, before they shut it down um, in the case of like a mining pool with a lot of hash power is this something that could be solved within a within a virtual desktop Within a software-defined yeah, if you if ecosystem. you have the actual data itself residing within a private enclave, it's basically the same thing as trying to keep the entire environment on on premises or in cold storage. So imagine if you created your own little private internet, and that's where it can only live. Um, and if you were allowed to come play in that party, then you'd say, all right, well, you are allowed to get into that environment, but no one else can. Right. That's impractical, though, because it starts to look like EOS, which is like known validators, sort of. I feel like it would kind of break the whole decentralized, wide open type thing. Totally. To try to shove it into an enclave. Yeah. Absolutely, right? You've got two competing pressures here, right? We want this thing to, cryptocurrencies to be available anywhere, um, and anyone should therefore be able to participate, but you've got the competing pressure of there are also really bad people that are trying to abuse these services and steal them. So I'm not sure where the, how the market is going to decide that where the balance is going to be struck between security and controls versus this, the openness of the system. What ended up happening to Zencash? Like um, they got to 51%, so they had their like, we have the best fork or whatever, but then like, was it shut down? Did they actually? Um, they, they eventually shut it down. They had to, there was a bunch of things that the community did, um, including like diverting hash power, I think, um, which is sort of a weird centralized, right, response. But like you can't have, in some way, like they, they couldn't fix it otherwise. Um, and then they issued, um, they issued a really long blog post and a video about it. So um, we can sort of put it, we can put that like down below in the links or whatever, but um, they did solve it, although they sort of printed Zen out of thin air. All right. Which hasn't actually happened with Bitcoin. Huh. <laughs> so um, are there any other like, uh, specific uh, news news stories you want to go over with how like Dispel could have fixed XYZ? I think that one of the things that sort of become the word of this year, just separate from specific incidents or news stories, but, but one thing that we've seen has been this idea of resiliency. Um, so a lot of security networks, a lot of networks just in general, 
um, are pretty static and they're everyone's sort of perfect little crystallized thing that they build. So each, you know, sysadmin sets up their environment and it takes them some time to do it. Sometimes they don't fully know, like how do you get your, your SSH keys right set up. Um, that sort of thing, once it's in place, it's a static sort of brittle environment. It's been locked down, but if I have to change it rapidly, things will go wrong pretty quickly. And because changing things becomes a hassle, they don't get changed. And so that has a couple implications for security, but also for being able to recover from incidents, um, to be able to respond to stuff, to be able to grow a scale at rapidly. And so we've been seeing both, not just in the security environment, but also the DevOps environment, I think more and more people talking about resiliency. Um, to what NIST has just come out with a new standard uh, framework for how you can do this. Um, and part of it is to use virtualization and decentralization as a means of achieving that and use automation and orchestration. And basically take all these security layers and be able to bake them into that process. Because if I can automate how I build new infrastructure, then I can make the security layers uh, part of that automated deployment so people don't have to think about the security layers being put into place. So how does this apply to the cryptocurrency community? It would mean that there, hopefully we'll get to the point where there's a playbook that every single time someone wants to do an ICO or someone needs to set up an exchange, they can basically take one of these automated playbooks and just build it out. So um, that would require, um, so that would be like, but the cryptocurrency space needs a lobbying group, right? So like I'm part of this thing called the, the BTA, which is the, it was formerly the Securities Tokens Alliance. So, um, but yeah, it needs a lobbying group basically. Mm -hmm. To centralize or coordinate them, you mean? Or at least just post them, right? And so like something like NIST would be like, hey, these are the things that we recommend you do. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you've, and you sort of saw this kind of orchestration idea come into vogue with containerization, which has a host of security concerns around it. Um, but that kind of orchestration and network automation, which containers don't really deal with, but this deployment of virtual environments is something that, that absolutely can be helpful for people who are trying to do this. The reason why is because it means that they don't have to invent the security wheel themselves. A lot of these security tools can be implemented for almost free. Um, and it'll protect against, call it 90% of the issues that are out there. Now, if they're super targeted insider threat things, you're gonna have to deal with that a different way. But like, if you can get everyone to like 90%, that'd be great. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's say uh, a crypto user or a, a group of them wanted to um, use your services, how could they do it anonymously? The end users who are contributing into the environments, the access that they're granting is can be defined by the customer who purchases the system. Um, so a customer could do that with like a cash card or something? They could just like buy a Bitcoin, you know, with Bitcoin they could buy like a debit card or something? Mm -hmm. We do have certain safeguards in place to prevent people from abusing this kind of system. Um, so you obviously want to be sensitive to that and we do have those safeguards in place. Uh, but we certainly do work with some folks who do want to maintain anonymity, less for their own personal protection or uh, privacy, but more because they're usually concerned about the entire privacy and secrecy around an ICO taking place or themselves becoming targets. If you know that these X, Y, and Z individuals are involved with 
um, cryptocurrencies, then they have private keys, then they could become targets for hackers who want to be able to compromise that. So we work with folks about how do they establish these accounts um, without creating a publicly exposed profile. Great. Um, and if so, um, I guess we'll come up or the code that we'll, we'll send our listeners to is just cryptocurrency that if they reach out to you on, uh, on intercom or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, are there any other um, sort of final comments you, you, or ideas you wanted to go over? Not necessarily, no. I think this was uh, really great, actually. We kind of uh, we made a lot of headway here on a large part of the space. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see, maybe some other date, like how cryptocurrencies, most exchanges actually are setting up their security stacks and how are they doing it versus enterprise networks and how do the two sort of worlds exist and where are the backgrounds of these folks when they're coming in? Is there, is there really good IPsec and stuff like that being, becoming involved? Yeah, cool. I'd be very surprised if people don't have questions. We've covered a lot of like... <laughs> yeah, we've, <laughs> we've, gotten, gotten, we've gotten, gotten a little technical. Over, yeah, we've glossed over a lot of stuff, but yeah. Cool. Great. Well, thanks for your time, guys. I, yeah, I appreciate thank you. it. I, I would like to do this more on a recurring sort of basis. I think it would be sort of interesting to go through like the hacks that are going on because I'm sure they'll continue to escalate due to stupidity. But um, man, I love this kind of stuff. So I'd love to chat about it again. Thank you for having us. Okay. Thank you. Cool.